Welcome to Reputation Town. Hey everybody, episode 11, and it is a really big day in Reputation Town today because we have our first visitor. Our first visitor, Molly McPherson, PR practitioner, crisis responder, media manager from the US of A. Molly, thanks for being with us today. I'm so happy to be here, but I think today I would like to be Annie Oakley instead. <laughs> We're all going to get a, okay. a character. Like a, okay. <laughs> yes. I, I, this is how I come to your, um, to your reputation town. I'm coming up with my six shooter, my cowboy hat. Hello boys. John, what's up today? How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to getting a haircut. It's uh, I think T minus three days until I'm going to camp out uh, at the barbers. So when they finally open up again, we can, I can get a haircut. Well, here's the thing. They're going to open up, but they're not going to let you in. They're not, they're letting all the, the moms in who have the hair issues and the dye jobs and the more lucrative uh, and, and the longer relationships and the lucrative bills where we are going to get haircuts in October. I, I think you're. I think you're overestimating the low quality uh, place I go to get my haircut. <laughs> Where do you go? Give him. Give him a shout out. It's it's uh, it's an Italian place that. Um, oh, back yeah. in the old days, I, I, I tell my kids back in the old days. I remember the barber I used to go at. He used to actually smoke while he cut cut your hair. So sometimes <laughs> you'd like drop ash in your hair. It's got a step above that where where we go now. Well, that's yeah. Ironically, that's the color of your hair now. So congratulations. <laughs> <It is. laughs> Okay, so um, Molly's going to be Annie Oakley. John, who who would you like to be? Apparently, John Wayne is off the table. John Wayne's canceled. So he's been canceled. Uh, I'm going to be like the the, the uh, sci fi equivalent uh, westerns, Han Solo. Huh. That's a little bit outside. It's a western. Star Wars is a western, just based in space. It's an opera based in space. Eh, it's a western based in space. Mm. I think are we getting to the bottom of why people can't find Reputation Town podcasts <laughs> because we've gone through for a PR podcast to now discussing Star Wars. Yeah, <laughs> we were just uh, before we started taping, we were talking about the fact that Molly couldn't; she was actually actively trying to find the show and couldn't. So that might explain our uh, our single digit listenership. Okay, before we jump in, um, Molly is the, uh, in addition to all the things I talked about just a second ago on her, uh, her CV, Molly is also a published author. So I'd like to say congratulations on the publication of your book, which I see strategically placed in your shelf behind you. Very PR of you. Is that nice? And, uh, and not obvious either. No, it's just subtle. Very subtle. Oh, in, yeah, like I just pull it when I need it. Right. So uh, why don't you give us a little overview of the book, what it's called, what it's about? Well, Indestructible is really becoming like my new brand. And I, you know, this idea of people being afraid to communicate and put themselves out there. And I find uh, communications, authentic communications, whether you are proactively um, discussing, you know, some of your efforts or noble causes, or if you're reacting in a crisis, uh, people are still afraid to put themselves out there for this, you know, whether it's a cancel culture or someone like, you know, trying to bring you down um, online. And so my thought, it's almost this 
jujitsu way of thinking is the more authentic you are and the more comfortable you are putting yourself out there, the more indestructible you become because authentic communications can be the most powerful form of it. And so that's what this book is about. It's, you know, part how to survive a media crisis, but also part how and why you should be more open to authentic communications. Very nice. So congratulations on writing it and getting it out there. Everyone, I think, has writing a book on their bucket list before they mm-hmm. before they leave this uh, this plane that we're on. And you are now on that list. It's out there. It's on Amazon. It's in bookstores. Now we have ordered five copies of Molly's book for the podcast. We're going to keep one. Then me and Paranak are going to read. Um, well, actually, Paranak, you'd order your own. <laughs> Molly's say, like, what the? You what are you doing? Sharing share. my book. <laughs> Well, we live like a digital copy. You just said we live like a block away from each other, but (laughs) um, yet, and we do this podcast virtually. But we're going to be giving away four of them, and here is the uh, the contest that I've just kind of come up with in my head. And tell me if this sucks, and we'll just delete it and start over. Since our podcast is so hard to find, uh, if anyone wants to go to uh, Apple Podcasts, find it Reputation Town, leave a review for it. Doesn't need to be good. It could be like, just listen to this. If you like it, if you don't, whatever. And an honest review, take a screenshot of your review and email it to me at warren at weeksmedia.ca. The first four people who do that will get a copy of this book. We'll connect with you by email, get your address and fire the book out to you. And you will have Molly's book and you will learn how to also become indestructible. Fabulous. That's a great idea. Great promo, Warren. Well, yeah. uh, Only if four people are listening. (laughs) <laughs> we'll keep you posted. Okay. Uh, now we, we have some kind of like this. wasn't the biggest crisis week. We got some, some weird kind of stuff from some different reputational angles we're going to get into. Uh, but Molly, uh, how we do things here in, in reputation town, are we taking this thing too far with the theme? Like anyway, so what we like to start out with a little kind of just some off topic stuff. Um, you know, anything that happened this week, what's going on in your world, Paranak's been uh, really firing on all cylinders with his hockey predictions over the last couple of weeks. I don't think you've gotten one right yet. No, they've been zero right. It, it, it's like I said last week, the NHL actually communicated with me and said, please stop making predictions. <laughs> so, John, did you predict the Bruins? Uh, no, actually, I was rooting for them. And uh, they, they are disappointed to see them lose against the Islanders. But, but you th- did you think they were going to win? I thought so. I picked oh, a lot yeah. of them in this hockey pool I was in. Okay. The all right. Understood. Pool. Yeah. All right, but so sad, sadly, and then I and I'm just being vilified by all my friends who are Canadians fans now that they made the finals. Jesus Christ! But anyway, what can you do? As a long-suffering Leafs fan, this is this is just like the the it's like an exquisite pain on top of the pain we felt as they left uh, the playoffs earlier this year. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I I believe that the issue is not the team. Because, you know, I'm, I'm watching this team and I have to say they've kind of won me over from a heart perspective. Like they, uh-huh. there's no superstars other than Carey oh. Price. They've got, you know, they're a pretty evenly matched team with anyone else. But like they're bringing it to a different level in the heart department. And I, I love that. Uh, and it's not even all the fans. It's a subset of the fans who are, I would say, the, and again, subset. Some of you are great. Dennis, great. Um <laughs> I would say that this, there's a subset of Montreal Canadiens fans that are the most obnoxious hockey fans on the planet. Is that a fair statement? That's accurate, yes. Molly, do you want to jump in? Well, you know, it, well, um, 
Canadians, uh, they, you know, you're, you live in New England, so it's not a team that you ever think about or care about. Correct. Right. I mean, just, you know, we're, I mean, Yankees, Red Sox, whatever it is, but fast fact or fun fact, um, Guy Lafleur from years ago, right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was, uh, we had friends that lived in Montreal. And so when I was young, that was like the one name I never forgot, um, from, from hockey town. That's the name of your podcast. Hockey Town. Maybe it could be a spinoff. It could be a spinoff. Yeah. So, um, but at any rate, yeah. So once the once the Bruins were out, the playoffs are over um, in the house. So uh, I can get that. Um, I can get that. Yeah. But uh, not to digress. But uh, you know what? There's an interesting, I think, management lesson, just generally from what you just said, Warren, about the about uh, the, the cohesion of that team, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be all superstars, but the way they're playing together, the way they, they operate together is there's some lessons in there more broadly for, for managers, I think, but that's a whole different storyline. And I would say, and again, I'm not a fan, but I would say, and it's interesting because if you're not a fan, you can kind of watch the game a little bit more objectively, which is kind of cool. If you're a fan, everything is colored with those, those, those glasses. But uh, I, I believe that they not only defeated all the teams they faced along the way, they also defeated the, the, the officiating. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't remember worse officiating since the Kerry Frazier incident, Doug Gilmore, Gretzky, 93. Like this to me was, was so obvious that, um, like I, I'd made a prediction with the, the game last night that if they, if Montreal didn't score early, that, um, if it, if, if overtime had lingered on the refs were going to call, um, like all, all you need to do is put your thumb on the scale just a little bit to tilt a game. And mm-hmm. the rest would have called a penalty on Montreal. We're going back to Vegas. You're in their barn. Anything happens. So anyway, I, just, I feel like they're going to win now. Apparently, no, don't say anything. No, no comments. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, do you have any off-topic banter you want to throw into the into the rodeo mix here? Well, I mean, off-topic. I mean, I was going to say it's it's more about the lightning, but whatevs. W- what about it? Well, I, I mean, just in terms of the strength of, of the series and what's going to happen, I think it's going to come down to the lightning. But. Oh, okay. But everyone's been saying that against every team that Montreal has faced. And so, like, so yeah, that's interesting because you haven't really been paying attention. You've kind of missed them because they're like, the Leafs are going to smoke them. The Jets are going to kill them. And then they swept through. So every team that has supposed to was supposed to just dispatch with them just effortlessly is now kind of playing golf. So it'll be interesting. And and they have nothing to lose. They're the underdogs here. I yeah. don't know. We'll see. Like, I don't want them to win, and I don't want them to lose. So I don't know where that puts me. I think I'm a very bad fan. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Any other off-topic off stuff, or do you want to jump in? Because we've been, been chit-chatting wanna, for 20, 25 minutes, and we're... I want to jump into the some of the... We had a couple of interesting topics to discuss, and I want to get Molly's opinion on a couple of things. Actually, we were talking about uh, in previous weeks. Okay, Paranak, why don't you take it away and uh, put... What, of, of our rotisserie of topics, why don't you just throw one out there into the into the center? Okay, so so one of the ones that you brought up, Warren, I think this is an interesting one to start, is this uh, this company. Um, it was it was in the National Post and I think a few other outlets this week called Blade, and they announced that, or the CEO admitted that uh, for a number of years they've been using a, a made up employee as a spokesperson, and the CEO himself has been providing like actual interviews and comments under this under the pseudonym uh, and, and he kind of gave an excuse that 
they were a small company, so they didn't have a lot of people. So of course you do what everyone else does, which is you make somebody up and you pretend to be somebody else, which I just thought was kind of bizarre. And uh, I was, you know, as, as I reflected on this, I thought, okay, there's a lot of different ways you can go to fix a situation like this. Ultimately it comes back, it comes down to this. wasn't a great moment of judgment on the part of uh, the CEO or, or, or the company, but I was really curious to get your, uh, both Molly and your comments, Warren, about how, like, what do you do to fix this kind of situation? Like, it's, it's, this is not an easy one to walk back, especially after I've been doing it for three years. Molly, you're the guest, so we'll let you take it away. There's something about this story when it popped up on uh, the radar that did not strike me as, um, as much of a business killer as pretty darn right clever. And I don't know what that says about me as a communicator, but when, when I read what his pseudonym was, um, it was Simon McLaren. And in my head, I thought, okay, wait, McLaren. And I was trying to think of, a, of over in England, like who is the British, wasn't there a British singer that was McLaren. And then I was the, it was a manager of the sex pistols. Mm. And then the first, and then the first name was Simon. And I thought, Oh, like Simon LeBon, right, like maybe right. this guy's like a big, like punk rock, you know, uh, Brit music type of a fan. I, I mean, I don't know. There's a cleverness to it. I mean, of course you can't make up a person, especially how ironic, like you're going to, of all people that you make up is someone who is supposed to tell the truthful story of a business. Um, but it's, I got, I don't know. It's a couple shades clever on me. You know, Donald Trump, I don't know if you remember the story yes. a number of years ago, John, Donald Trump. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, did you mention that before? No, Warren? No, no, but I was, oh. was going to bring it up. Go ahead though. Tell, tell the story. Yeah. So uh, Donald Trump, um, he, when he was doing an interview back in the days of when he was with Marla and he was doing an interview about the Ivanka Marla. Um, I, I don't know if it was Marla or if he was just talking about his marriage, but he pretended to be a, uh, to be a spokesperson. He said his name was John Miller, who at the same time, you know, the, the former ABC, ABC um, correspondent, John Miller, who also then ran the public affairs for the New York City Police Department. But he did a radio interview claiming to be his own publicist. And anyone now who were to listen to it would know that that is Donald Trump using the same vernacular that he uses. So it's funny that this guy, almost, you know, did pretty much the same thing. But of course, it's abhorrent. Like you cannot pretend and make up a communicator. But I don't know. He's kind of getting away with it too what do you think warren so i'm i'm half half of me thinks it was kind of ingenious and yes and i yeah i can actually see places where that tactic might be more acceptable and i've seen situation like there was some situation where there was a i can't remember the details i should have looked it up but there was a a female executive who who um made up like her own assistant or something like that to be like a buffer when she was doing negotiations or emails. And like, to me, that's a little bit less nefarious. Like you're becoming your own assistant to, to put yourself at arm's length to, to just handle things a little bit differently. To me, this one is, it's not, and it's not so much the thing that happens. Like, and to me, it's like, why did he do it? And I believe, I don't know, I don't know this guy, but like, I believe that the reason and again, I see everything media relations. So everything is like a media relations issue for me. But I, I believe that it was uh, an, an element of like he wanted to have control over those media interactions and he wanted to also have the benefit of distance. And so he allows himself to be the person on the phone, but he has a buffer. So if something if something goes wrong, he has someone he can fire who is fictitious. And so he can just like make up a new guy. And so I, I, to me, I think that I I don't recommend it. 
I think, like Molly said, I think a lot of executives are going to see this and wrongly think, hmm, that's maybe not a bad idea. Maybe we'll do that ourselves. Um, I don't think it's a great strategy, but to me, it, it, it comes back to a sense of, and fear is maybe a little strong, but I think it's a, it's a desire to control the media narrative. And so you have to ask yourself, why is that the case? And there's, you know, we talk about this every week. There's this disconnect between executives uh, wanting to have control, doing an interview, and the coverage is completely different from what they thought it would be. And so I think this is a byproduct of all of that. What I didn't really like was his apology. And so these are just some quotes that I'm having out of context. But as Paranak referenced, he said, and I want to make sure I get this right. When we were a small company, everyone had to wear many hats. When it was appropriate for a spokesperson to respond to a press inquiry rather than the CEO, given that we did not have a spokesperson, we used a pseudonym in email communications. So the many hats thing is is a bit of a, a red herring to me, and it's a bit of a, a lame excuse. And so they're, in addition to making up people, they're making up excuses like the many hats thing. So what if you're short a pilot? You know, what do you does he throw on his little jumper and go get in there? Or if you're short a mechanic, does he do the same thing? And then then the next two pieces from an apology standpoint, and that's, we're here, it's reputation town, right? So I'd like to get your take on this. He tries to justify it by saying, whether using the pseudonym or not, every question was answered and every comment that was made to the press was factual. So he's saying, even though we made it up, everything we said was correct, which I think is kind of like saying, I'm sorry that we kidnapped your kid, but we fed her very well. I don't know, like maybe that's a bit too harsh a comparison. And then um, he said he issued an apology in quotes to anyone who feels deceived. And so like it's your your problem. If you felt deceived by this thing that he's implying, like he's implying the problem is yours. And so, you know, their stock price is apparently up. I don't think this is going to hurt their business. Um, I don't think long term this is a huge thing. But like to me, I'm fascinated by like this guy had been quoted in The New York Times, Washington Post, Fox, Biz News, CNN. He had a blog. He had a whole like a whole persona and then they fired him at some point and he had a whole like he wrote a whole like soliloquy on his blog saying that he couldn't stand the company editing his thoughts anymore. And so he had to leave the company and like he had a Twitter profile with a photo like he had a whole like life. And I find it interesting that I think one journalist kind of just tried to find the guy like on LinkedIn or maybe wanted to go for a beer with him or something and just kind of couldn't figure it out. And there wasn't enough of a digital footprint there and asked. And then the CEO kind of fessed up. So to me, I thought the apology was a little lacking. How about yourselves? Well, you know, that apology, and I, I mentioned that apology in my book is when people distance themselves, right? They do that half step and they only apologize to the people who they offended or who the people that were that were put out by this. Um, Warren, you had mentioned, you know, the, the industry. I mean, yeah, I think if he were a gamer, if this was a game industry or if it was an author of a sci-fi, you know, something that that would would speak to the intrigue would may have um, made it a little more palpable for us. But as you mentioned, the reporters, too, and how many stories he did, it's there's almost this baked in protection layer of protection that a lot of stories don't want to report on it either because they were duped by not doing their due diligence because no one did their due diligence mm-hmm. um, with this guy. So it's not good that it's transportation. <laughs> you know, you want a, an accurate record, an accurate safety record. You don't want a CEO who's this loose and fast if you're riding in that helicopter, you know, as, as well. So, yeah, I'm with you, Warren, on it. Well, and this is one of those times where, you know, when I think about reputation management, I'm thinking about, you know, 
the board of directors of a company like this and the oversight that they have to, um, I guess, provide. And they look at the guy they have in charge. And if he's making up stuff to the media, what does that mean? How he's going to be received when they have to do the next round of fundraising with investors, right? Not necessarily the public markets, but maybe the private markets or something, but you know, it it has a lot of knock on effects and, and, um, generally speaking, it's doesn't build trust and confidence in the company overall. And, you know, maybe it's one of these companies where the founder owns, you know, most of the equity. So it doesn't matter because the board is kind of there to provide minimal oversight because, you know, it's a, it's, it's heavily dominated by that one person, but if it's not, I think this is one of those cases where reputation wise, the board has to look at it and say, is this in the best interests of this entity and, and the mm-hmm. investors that we're responsible to, to, have this kind of person in charge. It's a, it's, it's, it's a tough question. The stock being, price went up. The yeah. stock price went up. Maybe so maybe it. he's crazy like a fox. And maybe. It and you mentioned Donald Trump. I thought the, the that wasn't the only time he did that. Uh, there was another time when Donald, and you could say that this was maybe one of the first dominoes of him becoming this public figure that ends up becoming the president. But many, many, many years ago, he is trying to cultivate this, this persona and this brand of himself. And I remember, and I don't know if this is true, but someone told me that, you know, my, the first time I saw him, I was a little kid and I was watching Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And I saw this guy, Donald Trump, in a trench coat walking in New York. And there's all these photographers in front of him walking backwards, snapping pictures like Peter Parker. And someone told me who said that they, they had inside information that he had actually paid all those photographers to follow him around and just to have that sort of effect. And people are like, oh, who's that guy? And then it just kind of takes off from there. But um, he, you know, you obviously know the, uh, what is it, like the Forbes list of all the billionaires. And they come up mm-hmm. with this list every year. And he wanted to be on the list. And so what he did, and there's a tape of this. He called up Forbes, talked to the person who was um, running the uh, that, that segment. And he pretended to be like one of the people in the accounting department at his company. And he was talking about, and so they dug this out out of a box and they played it. It was on a special they had on CNN a couple of years ago called, I think um, the Trump dynasty It was like a three part special. And so this guy has had this cassette tape in a box and he put it in. It's clearly Donald Trump pretending to be another person talking about how much money that this guy had. And he said, Oh, you got billions and billions. It's amazing. It's fantastic. You can't believe how wealthy this guy is. And so he basically BS'd his way onto the list by using this guy. And that was one of the, and then he used being on the list to go get bank loans to finance a lot of his buildings. And so he was in many ways one of the originators of this technique. And so like I'm probably not the best guy to want to emulate it from that regard. <laughs> yeah. Well, he just lost the straw poll um in the in, in that conservative uh poll that they did to um Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis the, the, yeah. yeah, from the governor of Florida. So I don't know. So it could be catching up with Donald Trump now. No. Let's. Uh, I want to turn to to another topic, and I think it's actually probably the most topical topic because uh, there's only one of us who's in USA Today today. <laughs> it's not me. It's not me. <laughs> and Molly, so you um you were interviewed about I think a topic that uh, is is one that you like to talk about quite a bit, which is cancel culture. Maybe you can tell us a bit about um the uh, the story that you're you're involved in today and your your take on cancel culture today. Well, there is a slight correction. It's not just in the article today. It's in the weekend edition of USA Today. So it will be in hotels all across the country all weekend. Brilliant. <laughs> so, yes, brilliant. Um, yeah, so it's the take 
of David Oliver um, on this story, I, I think is a good one, is a unique one. And this is what, what is the reason why I piqued my interest, because it's something that I've always said about it. People, you know, hear about cancel culture. They trot it out uh, as this term of reckoning for someone or some brand or something that had happened. And uh, the conservatives uh, recently have have appropriated it as this idea of using it as almost a talking point for anyone who does not agree with them. Um, so this groundswell, it's it's the woke liberal mob media that just want to bring us down. And what he had pointed out in this article, which lines perfectly with my thinking on it, is that the cancel culture is not about the action of people just arbitrarily deciding to bring someone down. Um, it is it is born from the rebuke from someone's behavior or usually their character. And I think that speaks to where we are just as a society, as a culture, that we've come to this place where people don't tolerate um, people who have a poor character or abhorrent behavior or have done something. It's We want to let people know that that's no longer allowed. So the take that he was making in this article was, is it better to call it an accountability culture as opposed to the cancel culture, which I said, yes, in, in theory, that works. I mean, the alliteration doesn't work. Everybody loves the alliteration. Um, but accountability is truly what it is. That's what it's all about. And, and he nailed that. So I was happy to be a part of the article. Paranak, uh, what's, what's, your, what's your take on, on cancel culture? And it, it's, such a, it's such a pervasive term these days. And it's just, it seems like that's one of the major functions of social media is someone has some kind of misstep. And then everyone just kind of jumps on. Now, again, there's a huge spectrum, sometimes completely deserved and everybody can agree, abhorrent behavior. Sometimes it's a matter of uh, a journalist taking something out of context, sometimes on purpose. I'm one of the first to say reporters are not necessarily out to get you, but sometimes they are. And in some cases, and especially when you have like super left or super right leaning journalists who are trying to um, you know, change the world with their their mission and they'll take a piece of content out of context and they'll throw it out there and they'll use that as kindling to, uh, to burn someone's reputation down. So you have both kind of ends of that spectrum. Where, where do you land on that today? You know, probably not very satisfying, but I've kind of landed in the middle a little bit because I think to Molly's point is sometimes it's really justified where someone's been just like egregious in their behavior and there's just really no defending it. And, you know, they, they sort of have to be held to account to it. But there's also a, a sort of a vein of, in society today where um, there there's a, um, maybe the pendulum is swinging a bit too far and, and the, that the slightest offense, um, you know, the, the impetus is there to say, well, that person is done and shouldn't be allowed to, you know, be involved in their profession anymore or being, you know, that, that business should be, you know, ostracized. And, and this is really just, there's no, there's no clear set template you can apply against this. So what, what, what uh, is the right application of this and what's an unfair application of it. And I think it's one of those things where I, I know when I see it, right. When, when you see, when you see one of those offenses that is just like goes counter to social norms or counter to just, you know, basic decency, then yeah. You know, like we, we were talking about the case of Chrissy Teigen earlier, right. Where she had a public persona of one thing and it, be, it became clear that she was actually mercilessly bullying people um, online in, in a, 
in her in her private uh, in her private time, and so somebody like that, yeah, they have to be held up to account for it. Now, does it mean she's never going to work again and never going to have rebirth? No, probably not. Like it just depends on how they, she manages the rehabilitation or taking responsibility for what she was doing and managing rehabilitation. Does it mean she's going to be a spokesperson for you know uh, Procter and Gamble in the future? Probably not. I can't imagine like, you know, rehabilitation to that kind of level, but you know, I think people, there there is future for people again in those circumstances, depending on what they do. You know, if she were to really devote some serious time to actually, you know, contributing in a positive way to the things she was, she was doing, then yeah, there's, there's some upside there. Others, you know, we, this gets to the kind of, we talked to you about the way people apologize for things. Other people who are, are, are called out, they don't really want to take responsibility. So they use the, well, if anyone was offended or to those who may have been offended and, and they don't actually uh, make the clear delineation that, yeah, you know what, that thing I did was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And then it makes it really, really hard to actually do any re- rehabilitation. For anyone who wants to check out this article, by the way, it's called It's Time to Cancel, Cancel Culture, Call It Accountability Culture Instead, David Oliver. Uh, and Molly, from a uh, public relations standpoint, there are, well, again, we don't know if anyone's listening, but if, like, let's say hypothetically someone was listening and they wanted to know, like, how do I get in USA Today? Because that's a huge, uh, that's a huge get. Congratulations on that. How, how does, a, how does a, an article like that take place? Is it pitched? Is it as a result of the book? Like how, like, let's say someone else is in your spot. They want to be in a future um, edition or, or, uh, or, or publication of a, of a newspaper like this. What would be some, uh, some quick advice for them? Well, the quick advice in public relations, sometimes you have to be your own best PR agent. So, for example, if I were to say no one listens to my podcast, that would not make me a good public relations uh, counselor, would it, Warren? So you'd say, no, for the people who are listening to this podcast, Mm -hmm. um, this is what I'd say. No, this is a case where David Oliver was on Twitter, which is the medium, the social medium of journalists. uh, And that's why I always encourage my clients, uh, even if they're resources are, are stretched thin. At least you're on there to, uh, to um, seek out the, the reporters and, and editors and producers who are in your beat and you're looking for stories and being a part of stories. Media relations is, is a skill that just reminds me of working back in the nineties because it was all about picking up the phone, Mm -hmm. you know, eventually email and you're always pitching, pitching, pitching. And then when we, when social media came around and now, you know, content is just bleeding out everywhere. I mean, you can get in a story anywhere, but I feel like people, the, the lost art of pitching. Um, so this is just a case of a reporter, um, on Twitter who is doing a story about cancel culture and me, I, that is where my antenna goes off. And I saw that and I just reached out to him and I said, Hey, this is what I talk about. This is what I have a podcast about. And I just happened to write a book about it as well. And, um, and then I told him when he had mentioned accountability, it was just from one simple tweet. I said, this is an article that is really based on my philosophy on the cancel culture. And I talk about it in the book and because accountability is just the step one in my crisis response framework. Um, and so when he asked me the questions, um, I, you know, I replied back. It was an email interview and I made sure that I baked in my cr- crisis response framework for anyone who's, you know, caught up in the swirl of 
of a of a crisis or a cancellation and he printed it it Love was that. in the article so right? uh, did you when you first reached out to him and I'm sorry to get too technical but I think these little details matter so first follow the reporters who cover your industry follow them on Twitter because like you said they are all there when you first reached out to him was it on Twitter or was it through email like how did you get in touch with him uh, well, I will as just a parallel track to this. So I, um, I just launched this masterclass, this um, PR masterclass, because I, I put everything under this brand now of indestructible PR is, you know, how do you have, how do you build a powerful brand, but also how do you cancel make a cancel resilient brand. You know, how are you protecting your brand um, from this idea, you know, of cancellation, people striking out um, against you. And one of the sections that I took the time to research because it is somewhat new is social media relations. Cause it's not just media relations anymore. It's not just, you know, pitching the press, you know, picking up the phone and sending all these emails. I mean, certainly that exists. And those are, we think of publicists when we think of that, you know, we think about having relationships with, with the media, but part of what I was writing and I created this as part of a module was how do you do social media relations using social media and Twitter to me is, and to many reporters out there and producers and editors, that is the medium for journalism. They'll certainly use for journalists. They'll certainly use Facebook to source stories and to background check stories. Like they'll, they'll sneak their way around there to find and verify. When I worked at a newspaper, I certainly did that. But in terms of the outreach for a story and looking for people using a hashtag like journal request, um, if you work in media relations, put that hashtag out there every day, type it out and look what journalists are out there. If you are, if you have journalists in your beat, in your area, um, befriend them. And all it takes, it just starts with a like, like you like something that they wrote, you retweet, they're going to notice you and they're going to appreciate it. In this story, um, the first thing I, I, I retweeted, quote, retreated David Oliver's story. He liked it in less than 30 seconds. What does that tell you? They are living on Twitter. And he saw, oh, someone liked an article. Oh, it was my source in the article. And then he retweeted my tweet about that. So Warren, that's what it comes down to is like social media relations is the strategy behind using these channels effectively to get your story out. And in this case, I just did it for myself. Congratulations. That's great advice. And in addition to that, you have increased significantly, like the odds that he would have reached out to you just randomly were probably very low. You have just created a relationship where six, nine, four months from now, he might reach out to you again. The odds are very high now. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll certainly see, but you know, I mean, anyone in our business, and of course, anyone who is um, an author, you want to be tagged as, you know, an authority, you know, it just verifies your knowledge on it. And the best part about it, it's not about getting press. I mean, it's, you know, it's not about, you know, you know, getting a link there, which is all fine and good and, and people knowing that. But I like the idea of someone, uh, a journalist and a national publication, yeah. nonetheless, affirming a philosophy that I feel so strongly about is this idea of accountability in crisis management, crisis relations, uh, uh, crisis management, public relations, and and crisis response. That That is the first step of my response. It's the A, it's own it, which is accountability. So it was great that to have a reporter write about it. But there was a proactivity there. Like a lot of people, I think, write a book, they 
come up with some sort of idea and they just expect things to just kind of fall into their lap and you grab a bull by the horns. And that's a, which is a great reputation town analogy. No, you're right. No one, just because you write a book doesn't mean that they're going to come knocking at your the door. And you have a pod- yeah. yeah, exactly. And you have a podcast. I have a podcast. I get authors all the time. I get the Molly McPherson's all the time that are sitting there and writing to me, you know, about their book. And there's, and there's a lot of great information out there and a lot of great authors who work like us, they do other work for a living, Mm -hmm. but they want to put, they want to pen their ideas, you know, in, in a book. And that's why I like giving people, you know, like me, a voice on the podcast as well, because yeah. there's a lot of people that have good things to share. Nice. Paranak, did you have something to add on that last piece? I think, sorry if I cut you off. No, that's okay. I was just going to say, I love what Molly was saying about uh, the use of Twitter, because I find organizations that find themselves in crisis who don't have a well-developed online persona, if at all, are often really timid about um, about using any social media. And wh- one of the things that I've, we often say is that if you want to manage this crisis, you have to be on Twitter in order to engage with journalists. And it's interesting because a lot of companies they or organizations, they look at it and say, well, that's not where our customers are, or that's not where our, our, um, our stakeholders are. And my response is often, it doesn't matter. That's where the journalists are. And if you care about managing the crisis, go, go where the journalists are. So I, I love what you were saying about that. Do you, like, how, do you ever run into situations like that where people are really reticent to, to get on a platform and uh, you have sort of have to, to, to bring them along? John, you have given the Canadian version of the same speech I've given to my clients time and time again. It's this reticence of using it. And part of it is because I think they don't know how to use it. They're worried Mm -hmm. about using it and they feel that they have to fill the void and always tweet, which you don't necessarily have to do. It is when you're in a crisis, reporters are going to go to Twitter and it is I'm sure you would say the same here, just in following, um, you know, just following the news and following how people manage a crisis. It serves as your spokesperson. Now you don't need to be a John Miller or a Simon, not Simon LeBlanc, Simon McLaren, Simon Simon McLaren. You, um, all you need to do is put your statement on Twitter and that counts. That is your online press conference. That is your putting your microphone, your stand in front of your building and walking out of the building and looking at the press. It just takes one post and you don't have to be prolific on Twitter to have the ability to do that. A journalist will take that for, for its word. And I do know I've done work with, uh, with a, um, a producer with, um, a, with NBC news. And she was telling me, she said the, the news organization has completely changed. They are just as strapped for time as anyone else and money and budgets. We spend our time on Twitter. That is the new place for media relations. Hmm. It's an interesting comment about the, you know, putting a Twitter, like some sort of post or a statement up on your Twitter page. Like when a, when a crisis takes place, um, you know, we, we are all, and you know, pick your, your judge on American Idol. I used to say like uh, Simon Cowell, every time there's a crisis, you know, like we're kind of like the Simon Cowell sitting there and judging them and seeing what are they saying and what are they doing. And one of the first things I always do is I go to the company's Twitter page to see how they responded. And it's interesting, the guy from Blade, CEO, not, no responses, anything about this. And uh, actually, I looked up everyone we were talking about here today, and no one has talked about any of this on Twitter. So the other people that we have coming up as well, none of them have as well. But but it's also the content, right? It, the content can't suck, and it can't talk about all... Your apology has to be sound. Like, the one I think of is... Um, is there, there's two. One that did it really well 
if you remember the uh, the shooting in um, in Vegas, uh, what like what was that like four four oh, wow. four or five years ago in yeah. October? And I remember because um, I've I've been to Vegas a bunch of times, and you know have been you know up and down that strip many many times. And uh, I heard that I was making breakfast for my kids, and I heard the news, and I heard the gunfire. And it's like oh my god! Like just the number of people was staggering. And I went to and just again communications nerd, but I went to Mandalay Bay's Twitter page. And it was obvious to me that they had they had worked out those muscles before. They had everything ready to go. Now the content they had to customize, but uh, and you can go back in time. You can search for this stuff. I, f- I forget the exact. I think it was like October fifth or sixth or something in twenty eighteen. I think, and they had very fulsome uh, statements, updates, eight hundred numbers empathy, action, all the stuff that you want to see was there. And I'm like, that's a brand that took this seriously and invested in it. Again, you can't change the circumstances, but you can obviously take control after that. <clears throat> the one that I compare it to on the negative side is uh, is Boeing. And when those, remember those two airplanes crashed, the, the 737 or whatever, the, the Max 8, whatever, I even forget the name of the plane. I think that's it. That's right, 737. And the yeah. second plane went down, I think it was March, of 2019 March 10th I'll throw that out there as a guess and that day the Boeing put out a statement and I'm paraphrasing here but it was like it was like a PowerPoint slide like blue background white letters something like that and it basically said you know we feel terrible about this accident today but like these are great airplanes like these are really like it and I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek but it was basically it was a, a cursory acknowledgement of the of the crash which killed hundreds of people and was the second one in a couple of months and then it went on to justify how amazing these airplanes are and to me that was a huge fail for a multi 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 billion dollar company so twitter's important yes but the content is like you have to have both you can't just have one you know the the content and the action have to be there and so uh those are the two ends of the spectrum for me but like i would i would even go a step further and say get your ceo get the chair of your board, do a video, look in the camera, just, just bite the bullet. Probably a bad, bad pun given that. And <laughs> take the bull by the horns and look in the camera and tell your story. And you, you might have to do it eight times to get the nerves out or the ums and ahs or whatever. But I would almost rather see that, right? I want to, I want to look into their eyes. I think of Michael McCain from Maple Leaf Foods. Like that guy looked shook when he was doing his, yeah. his, like mm-hmm. I think it's 2008. That guy looked visibly like he looked like he was in barf. He looked uncomfortable, but he was owning it. And that's what I want to see. You want to look in the eyes of the person and see, do you believe them? Oh, the rawness I think is so powerful. Like sometimes the more raw and the more shook that you are, that can even be more powerful. Warren, I have to uh, commend you on, on your memory. Isn't it funny how you remember certain things so clearly about a crisis? Um, I noted in with Boeing, I think you could almost place the week they hired a, crass, a crisis management firm because they bungled it from the beginning. But then, and then that statement, and you're absolutely right. I remember the blue background as well. I mean, that's, I remember the graphic design behind it, but all of a sudden they made a shift. 
where they were trying to offset their their guilt and their culpability and what happened. And it was almost 500 people had died. And where they shifted is Dennis Muhlenberg. He's the CEO, the previous CEO of Boeing, the CEO at the time. All of a sudden, he appeared on camera for the first time ever. No one ever saw him. And this guy was from Iowa and a part of Iowa where they're not used to being in front. There was just there were just this very conservative section of Iowa where he lived. And that is not a culture that where he was brought in. And I just because I happened to be um, speaking in a town that was neighboring where he grew up in Iowa and they all knew him. But I noted that he came out and he did a video and they took accountability. And there was that shift that happened there. And that tells me someone was brought in from the outside and said, Boeing, you're losing this. You can't. And also what they tried to do is blame the pilots. But it was a pilot's fault for doing that. So there was that shift that happened where they took accountability and they used multimedia to do that. And they put his video out there. Now he's the former CEO, of course. But Mm -hmm. that's what I remember is the shift in tactic. I remember the video as well. uh, But I also like, yeah, and, and, you know, we can throw this out into the ring to discuss. But I remember the video making me more angry. And because like I, I didn't see I didn't see the rawness that I saw from the Maple Leaf Foods guy. I saw someone reading from a teleprompter who was who didn't want to be there. And like I didn't believe. And again, I don't know what's in this man's heart. But as an observer, I didn't think he was sorry for this. I think he saw this as a distraction to their mission of making money or um, this. You know, there was a series of issues, physical issues, software issues, all these things compounded. And like, how do we make this go away? I think that was the thing. And so if you're going to do a video, like if I was in that room, I'd be like, yeah, no, like I'd look at like nine takes of that and say, yeah, throw that away. Yeah. But here's the word. Here's what's so interesting is that the fact that I was in the town, like the neighboring town and it was, it was like orange Iowa or orange city, Iowa. I remember that. And he was, it may have, it's not Amish, but it was something like that. It was his culture. (laughs) These people knew him and they said they are not natural extroverts like they don't put themselves out that way so what you probably saw is someone came in and said he's got to go on the air he's got to do it but he was wired not to be natural like he probably was the if if someone took the time to really find out about him and said well wait a minute what is he really like they would have known that he was not the perfect spokesperson to put on camera and and it didn't work for him in the end but the tactic of having a ceo worked out great for him yeah. So it did because it moved it moved the trajectory of that. I mean, so Boeing, um, you know, Boeing still had troubles after that. And there was an expose that came out of it, so on and so forth. Um, but it's it's just that tactic, how 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 much that works and how powerful it is, is when the buck stops yeah. at the top and the, that person comes out and says, we're owning this. We were wrong. And this is what we're going to do to change it. Yeah. But it's, I think I think you're, you're both right in the sense that the tactic was right. But I think somebody at some point should have, in the practice, said this is not going to work. <laughs> yes, <laughs> guys. Yes. Does this guy have kryptonite in his pocket? Like, what's what's up? <laughs> not, not set up what's for this. On? Right, right. Uh, but uh, but then, what do you do? Right, like, you, you go to the chair of the board, or like, does at some point you run out of options, and it's not satisfying to have the. You know, even if it's like an SVP or something, then the question is, well, where's the CEO? Where's the CEO exactly? Well, I, you know, I think you know what I would you know. Again, like I, I wasn't there, then no one asked, but like, I think what I would have done is gotten everybody else out of the room and said, you know, what, what are the five things you, you, we need to say here today and write those words on a card, not, not a script, but like, cause he was reading a teleprompter that some, like the lawyer, the legal team came up with, I would say, here's the five words we need to get across empathy, action, 
investigation, accountability, put those up on the thing and, and tear the script, throw the teleprompter in the garbage and just, just say, okay, start at the top and videotape it. And you might have to do it for four hours. You will get four usable minutes out of that. That's what I would have done. Mm-hmm. Anyway, no one yeah. asked. And then, and that's not to stick on Boeing too much, but then I remember, and because again, like you can make this a 24 hour crisis or you can make this a eight month or 10 month crisis because I think the date was October 30th of 2019 when he finally came out. I think he was before the government and they were grilling him with questions. And he said, uh, finally, for the first time, you know, we made some mistakes. We got some things wrong. And I'm like, dude, it's almost Christmas. And, uh, I had, I, I was giving a talk that day or the day after it might've been October 29th, but I remember saying, you're a little late dickhead. That was my, uh, and the, the crowd loved it, but it was, and, and not to be disrespectful, but it's when you, so you know, to, to go back to Molly's original point, like I would say that if you're shy, if you're an introvert, you need to, you need to round out the, the, that skill set as part of your executive training. You know, if you, if you learn how to do, um, if you, if you, if you learn how to be a public speaker, if you learn how to, you know, be, be a great manager, if you learn how to delegate, you know, you need to learn this piece. Like this can't be an Achilles heel for someone who runs a billion dollar company. Who's also making missiles and rockets. Um, and, and, you know, Boeing ended up losing, there was that big contract given to, uh, two companies and it was Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's companies and Boeing was shut out of it. And I have no doubt that this, all of this was part of the reason that they got shut out. It's just, they were kind of toxic and, and cause people, it comes down to trust. And I, I look at the comments and so many people said, I will never get on one of those airplanes. People who worked on those airplanes said like, I'm an anonymous worker. I would never put my yes. family on one of those airplanes. Like to me, I, that is the most powerful advertising to not do that. Oh, oh, 100% Warren. And I think, and I don't remember if it was the New York Times or NPR or who did that expose where the worker in South Carolina said that I would, yeah, I would never get on that plane. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, And and the importance of what you do and what we all do, all three of us, is there is a cost to a bad reputation. There is, so when you think about it from a dollar point of view, that might shape, that might change your thinking. I know some people you know, CEOs, leadership, they might disregard the work that we do or the importance of it. And, oh, it's just, it's, it's easy. We'll just get on camera. We'll say this is, it isn't hard. Like, no, your, your stock price, your, your value is going to torpedo if you bungle this. Mm -hmm. So there, always think about the cost. That's an interesting point because I think it, it, it comes down to a faulty risk assessment that a lot of senior executives make and they, they make the assessment that, okay, I might not be great at media relations. I may not be great at doing interviews. I'm not comfortable with it. So I'm not going to do a lot of them because I want to control my risk. But really what, what, what you're doing is you're, you're, um, opening up risk that should a crisis occur. And oftentimes they do occur. You're, you're putting yourself in a position where it's really impossible to learn the skills that you need to execute well as a spokesperson in a crisis in the moment. It's just not going to happen. I don't care. Like, um, uh, Warren, you're a great media trainer, but I don't even think like a lot of these people we're talking about are, are, are salvageable in, in the moment like that. Right. Um, and, uh, and it's because they don't put the work in ahead of time and, you know, put yourself in a position where you're doing interviews and you're practicing and you're being exposed to those things or, or frankly have a robust crisis planning process in your organization so that you're doing 
uh, you know, maybe you're doing a, a, a simulation once a year or you're going through the, 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 the practice to make sure that you can execute well in a crisis. Uh, but people don't think that way often, right? They just think, Oh, well, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, just sort of put that aside and focus on <laughs> whatever else is going on and, and control my risk that way. Mm-hmm. Thank or you, we Ray. have a crisis plan and we did it in 2007. Yeah. So it's still fine. Mm-hmm. It's got it an works. inch of dust on it. Um, Paranak, thanks very much for the kind words, but it, it's, <laughs> it's not even so much. And I'm, I'm serious. It, it, I don't think it's so much the time. Like I think you can teach an executive how to become quite a bit better at media interviews in the course of a day. I think the problem is when, it, when a crisis is happening, the most important part of your brain is not working. You know, when you go into that fight or flight mode, and I'm not a scientist, but I've read so much and I've seen so much on this when, and and it goes back to that. You have that primitive, whatever you want to call it, your reptile brain, your primitive brain. And it just wants to make this go away. How do I make it go away? And so everything else just kind of goes into the back seat, strategic thinking, rational decision-making, future thinking, all of it is just make this go away. And so you are literally dealing with, you know, when your computer used to not start and do you want to start it in safe mode? You're kind of running in safe mode. You don't have access to all the stuff that makes you a great leader. And so they can sit through a training session, but like nothing's going to stick and they are going to make. So if you do that a year, a year earlier or two years earlier, when everything's fine and it's a nice day and the birds are chirping and there's coffee and Larry's making a joke and you learn, you learn it then. I think then you can apply it when the shit hits the fan down the road. No, well said. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, next topic. Are we are we good? You want to switch it up? We haven't sure. had a food related, uh, and that, I'm not even going to call this a crisis. It's just a weird story. But remember, cinnamon toast shrimp or whatever we had a while back, and that's <laughs> since disappeared. And so the next <laughs> the next one I want to bring up, and Subway keeps having just reputational issues. Like Jared, obviously, was the biggie, right? Jared. Oh, Jared. I forgot about Jared. Jared I Subway think, would be happy to know I forgot about Jared. Yeah. Jared, I think, is doing a hard time right now. Yeah. Is he still? I don't know. Is Isn't he still he? in the clink? He know. might be out by now. Oh, he might be I think out. he may have gotten, re- re- I think Molly's right. I think he may have been released uh, not, not too long ago. But, yeah, that wasn't a fun time. No. <laughs> for who? Like, obviously, for, for Subway. Oh, it wasn't like Jared. it was their fault, but it's. It's really it's, unfortunate. It's the dangers you, you of your brand to one person so close. Right. To I know. I know. Yeah. Extreme collateral damage. I can't yeah. believe you didn't say hit your wagon, man. It's reputation town. You guys, it's like Western. Let's <laughs> edit that in. Sorry. Hit your wagon. <laughs> so uh, the latest one with Subway, and then they had the yoga bread, yoga mat bread. Remember that? They had like they found out that some stuff in their bread is the same stuff in yoga mats. Do you remember that? That's oh, I remember that. But once again, Subway would be happy to hear. I didn't realize that was Subway. So do you? Are you like who's a big fan of Subway here? I like Subway. I, I, I'm a, I, I don't go there like often anymore, but I, 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 I was. I have a gl- yeah. I have a gluten. I have celiac uh, disease, and they don't serve it on, on gluten free okay. bread. Oh. Well, then you luckily were able to avoid their uh, quote unquote fake tuna. So the latest story yes. is, and, and and again, and I don't I don't even think it's so much the story. It's how does this story become a story, and then how does the company handle it? Because I think these are both really curious things. Subway has a whole bunch of different sandwiches. One of them is a tuna. They have, you know, tuna subs, tuna wraps, tuna salads, whatever. You've seen that gloop in the thing when they take it with an ice cream scoop, right? And so two women 
I think in January, I guess they had nothing else to do, some COVID time on their hands. They actually filed a class action lawsuit against Subway claiming that the tuna that Subway says is in its sandwiches doesn't actually contain any tuna. So these women spent $500 to have something called a PCR test done to detect one of five different species of tuna. They wanted to see, and I'm not sure even why they thought this, like maybe it just didn't have the right taste. I've never eaten tuna, so I don't know what it's supposed to taste like. But they went to this lab, spent $500, and the lab's like, we can't find any traces of tuna. So now the women say, okay, well, obviously this is something else, some foreign substance, class action lawsuit, media coverage. And so this has been really kind of bubbling up this week. They went and got samples from uh, three locations from throughout Los Angeles and brought them to this lab. Now, Subway... Their response to this was was kind of strange. And so they, first of all, there's no, it's not like the CEO, the president, the chair of the board, a face, a video. It was a spokesperson said, and I believe it was a written statement, said, this is an unreliable methodology for identifying processed tuna. And it does not show that there is no tuna in Subway's tuna. All it says is that the testing could not confirm tuna, which is what one would expect from a DNA test of denatured proteins. That's the company's statement. All right, take it away. What do we think? Molly, let's I think start the biggest you. crisis you've never had tuna before. <laughs> Who's never had tuna? Seriously, you really have never had tuna? Never in, in once in my life. I've don't I've never had it. What did tuna do to you, Warren? Why would you never have tuna? I did nothing. I've, I've nothing. I, I have no I, I've I've had salmon, I've had trout, just <laughs> well, I think your uh, your lack of, of empathy towards eating tuna um, almost speaks to the story as well. When I think of Subway tuna, I think of fake tuna. I think of probably a little bit of tuna mixed with a whole lot of something else. And so there's that piece of it. And also that it's a class action suit. And you're right. It's two women decide. I think today's the day. We're going to question someone about something. Oh, here we are at a subway. Let's talk about subway. These class action suits, even though the New York Times story uh, was a thoroughly researched and sourced story, and it was a good story um, by Julia Carmel that that came out um, on uh, June 19th. And there was a lot of buzz on social media, it's subsequent buzz because it's funny and all. Um, but there isn't much to the sandwich. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a big nothing burger. You know, they had to deal with it, um, but then move on because I think, isn't it just, isn't it just kind of a known assumption that they're not going to be selling like stress, um, fresh off the boat tuna? I don't know, John, what do you think? I think, I think it's kind of a bullshit story. I'm not even sure why the media even covers stuff like this. Like it's, it's like they basically, when, when these, that particular DNA test is done, it, they try and amplify the small amount of DNA that's that's uh, that in the sample, and it's kind of replicated. And so, if there's an error or a poor sample to begin with, because they replicate the amount uh, the the amount of DNA that's tested, the error is replicated and amplified. And so, when they say that you know the the test couldn't confirm things, uh, I'm not surprised because who knows what kind of processing this kind of food goes through before it actually gets to gets to a restaurant. So I don't know. To me, this is the kind of thing where. I think that the company's response was was overly technical and it sounds like the lawyers probably wrote it rather than right. the comms team. Uh, but on the other hand of it, on the other side of it, um, it's, I think it's a very suspect origin. It does make it, it does. The problematic thing is that companies like this tend to be once a couple of stories like this happen, like um, 
I noted in the original story in the Washington Post, you know, they were sued because uh, their foot long sandwiches were only 11 and a half inches long. And then that suit was thrown out. And then yeah. they had an issue with, I think in Ireland, it's not bread. It wasn't bread. And it was just like some regulatory, you know, uh, issue that <laughs> was involved. Um, you know, a company like this can be a target for this stuff. And then I just, I wonder yeah, you know, I wonder about the editorial decision to run stories like this. Yes, based on yes. Free of this kind of. Okay, but wait. Okay, okay. Just from all from everything we're saying here, if we had a pie chart, and again, I'm, I've I have no, I have no horse in this horse contest, or what, what what's the expression? No dog in this fight. <laughs> yeah. horse in you have no t- you have you have no tuna on the I have boat. No tuna on the boat. <laughs> If you had a pie chart where you had to say, what is your, uh, and just as a, as an observer, as a consumer, how much tuna do you think is in Subway's tuna? Just guess from a zero to a hundred percent. Oh, my, my pie chart would probably be at a 20%. 20%. Yeah, like 30%. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. Because the, the, the implication from the story is that there's zero. I think like if you if you're just a casual reader and you read this, like there's a line that says someone from the lab who didn't want to be identified because they don't want to screw themselves out of never working with Subway again. Yeah, which is kind of smart. But they said either there's no tuna or it's so overly processed that it couldn't be identified from a lab. So what do you take away from that? And so, again, anyone can say if you want to have an indestructible brand and they seem to be doing OK, I guess. But if you want to have an indestructible brand, this this is not the great kind of story that you want to have. And who knows what the next one is going to be like? How would you have let's say you are the president of Subway or Doctors Inc. or whatever the name of this company is. And keep in mind, they 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 position themselves as a healthy company, like a healthy fast food company. And uh I think there's a certain bar that you have to live up to. Now, if you were advising them and this story had just come up, like let's say in January, the story comes up and we wouldn't be dealing with it today if it had been, had been dealt with properly. How would you have advised this company to address claims that there's no tuna in their tuna, which is not, I don't even know if that's possible. There's no tuna in their tuna subs. Is this me? Are we going to me? Well, yeah, you're the guest. So we're just being, I'm the guest. <laughs> um, I, so, well, I, I, I will answer that, but I will say, even when John had mentioned the editorializing of it, the New York Times story, it looks like they were just itching to do this story. The photography that they used in it, that they took the Subway sandwiches and placed them in ice, that's an editorial decision for that type of graphic in the story, this imagery. I mean, that's, that's editorial right there. So I think it shows that the story didn't have the legs that they wanted it to have. So they needed to sprinkle in their own seasoning on this. Um, I would look at it. The first thing I would do if I was counseling them, one, I would go back to the archives and look to see what McDonald's did when their chicken McNuggets were questioned. What's in the middle of a chicken McNugget? McDonald's seemed to have survived that crisis, and there are millions of kids eating chicken McNuggets um, every day. Their statement, I thought, was a sound one, but it's it's a tactic that I find when it's almost like you mentioned the cinnamon toast crunch uh, shrimp story. General Mills did the same tactic is, okay, we will reluctantly... Um, come up with a statement on this story, but we think this story is silly. 
We will, it's, it's not even worth our time because two women decided to, to uh, file a class action lawsuit or in the case of general mills, a comedian, a comedy writer has, has decided to go on Twitter and tell the world that there were shrimp tails um, in uh, the cereal and they went along with it. Now, general mills took the extra step where the CEO did go on to CNBC. He did mention it, but he very cleverly wordsmithed it in a way to say, we will acknowledge that we're looking into it, however, and then questioned and pointed the finger, you know, back at this comedian. And in the end, they won that battle of the reputation because this guy was outed or canceled, if you will, you know, on Twitter. Um, the two in a story, I think they took the same tact. Let's not jump and dive in deep on this. Let's just put out a statement that we might be questioning the methodology. We might be questioning the reason behind this lawsuit. And let's just hope that it goes away. Fair enough. Yeah, I think I think that's right. In these situations, you you have one or two choices. You either attack the substance of what they're saying or the process. And in this case, they went after the process. Right? the The test wasn't test was flawed. This the test was nonsense. So, I just I just I think they could have done a better job humanizing what they had to say. It was just overly technical in the way they the way they came across. Right? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say they could have stepped it up one level and followed. Um, they could have looked at uh, the Cinnamon Toast Crunch story and said, okay, what did General Mills do in this case? And we could have had a little bit of presence from the CEO. And had we had that touch point with the CEO of Subway, we could have read between the lines what he th- he or she um, thought of this story, but instead they wanted to sanitize it and just put it out in a statement, which, you know, as John points out, you know, that that can harm you too if you only give it one statement you're saying this is all it's worth to us as one statement but it looks as as reading reading all of this the story the claim the response the lab the women i'm like and again not a big tuna consumer but i'm just thinking like i i don't know nothing has been answered for me like it sounds like the tuna is (laughs) mostly not tuna if if at all and so i'm wondering would it be and i guess it depends that that you know the, the answer to that depends on what you do but assuming there is some Let's say there's 25, 30% minimum tuna in there. If I'm the CEO for, yeah, do an interview, do a statement. And you kind of like between the lines, like this is ridiculous with your eyes or whatever. But you basically say, look, I can assure you. And at some point down the supply chain, there's a fish, right? And so I jump in a car, get on a train, get on a boat, go to the place. And I get my camera and say, look, this is where we source our tuna. And they're flopping out of the thing. And like, this is them. This is the factory they go to. This is where they are. Here's us putting them in a thing. Here's us mixing them up. And he takes a big bite. I can assure you 100% there's tuna in our tuna sand. Sandwiches. Like that to me would be okay. All right. I believe the guy, the woman, whatever, there's tuna in it. But this scientific, like, what the hell is a denatured protein? Like, you, like who let that go into maybe they have Simon McLaren advising them from a media relationship. <laughs> well. But you know what, though? If you do that, which I agree, that would be the show us the process or the process, as you would say in Toronto. <laughs> Very um, nice. Uh, is it this tuna, though, is likely from China? And then we have to go to China and then we have to look at the conditions and really what the tuna looks like. So maybe there's that process that they don't want to show. Yeah, it's contextually depends on what the answer is. Right. Right. And, and, but ultimately, you know, when the issue came up about the yoga mat bread, they changed the recipe. It's not in there anymore. And that's probably, that's probably a net good for society. I like this. And, and side note, did you know Subway is, they were listed in the New York Times story as the biggest fast food chain in the world. 
Now, I don't know if that's revenue-wise, but it's certainly location-wise. They have more locations than McDonald's. Yeah, it's all about real estate, right? When it it's comes to crazy. fast food. Now, uh, mm-hmm. again, from a from a reputation management standpoint, we've probably given this way too much airtime, but the company's last tweet was June 22nd, the day before the story came out. So they have not talked about it. They haven't addressed it on Twitter. And it's interesting because, again, communications nerd, I went into that tweet, and the tweet was something, like I'm paraphrasing it, but it's like, don't know what to have for dinner? Flip a coin. Heads, go to Subway. Tails, go to Subway. Something like that. And there's a ton of comments under it, and they're all about the tuna. So I just find that kind of interesting. Anyway, uh, I think I think we're good. Can we put that one back on ice? Let's put the fish back on ice. Okay. All right. I just want to do nice. a quick time check. Is everybody, because we're... We are now the officially the longest Reputation Town podcast in history, episode 11. Are you guys good to go for a little bit more? Sure. Nice. Yes. Um, John, which one do you want to tee up next? Uh, I think this is, a, this is an easy one. And I, I think it's a, it's a good PR lesson for companies. This the story that we saw about Ikea and, um, and they had a bit of a PR issue around Juneteenth. And if people... People don't know it. So uh, June 19th, I think it's always the same day, uh, but it became, it's, it's the emancipation day. It's the day that uh, when Lincoln uh, freed the slaves um, that became effective. And so it's, it's observed as a, uh, up until now informally as a holiday in the, in the United States. And just recently, I think this week, Molly, if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, made a federal holiday and, um, there was some controversy around it as, as one might imagine, but which is hard to believe, but in any any case, um, uh, Ikea had, uh, sort of, a, I guess it was, uh, well-intentioned, I'd say they wanted to to celebrate this day. Um, but they decided to celebrate it by having a, a menu selection in the cafeteria that featured things like fried chicken and watermelon, which I think most people would agree is insensitive and, and, and caused, um, a lot of, a lot of concern. Uh, and so the company obviously, uh, sort of, uh, apologized and, um, uh, to me, when I look at this, I see an example of this. This is sometimes you see this in organizations where the issue management uh, strength in the organization isn't as strong as it may as it should be. So that you know, organizations that have strong issue management cultures are ones where, at every level of the organization, people are attuned to issues. And when you see issues, how do you escalate them, and how do you resolve them before they become, you know public relations issues. And in this case, it may, it may have seemed innocuous that the, um, that the menu selection in the cafeteria on, uh, uh, around this holiday was, it was, was, a uh, not a problem, but it obviously was because, um, it wasn't an insensitive set of choices that were, were made. I'd be curious to know your guys' uh, opinion in terms of how well you think um, this reflects on the company and is it, is, is this one of those things where it's a major, a major issue the company is facing, or is it something that's going to be a fleeting, uh, blip and, and, uh, the company will move past it. Okay. This story, uh, smacks to me, uh, like not so much a corporate story, but a store story because it's one Ikea it's in Atlanta And in my head, what I'm thinking is there was someone who runs a menu 
a junior staffer that said, oh, what should we do for June or come up with a Juneteenth menu? And either they knew it or they didn't know it, um, but it was intentional and it was clearly wrong, but it was so incidental and, and just one location. So what does a corporate brand do over in Sweden when one store in Georgia decides to do something so racially um, insensitive? I, I think it was just an employee or two employees that made a uh, that made a poor choice in in a menu because I don't know. I, I don't want to um, dump on millennials or Gen Z and say that, you know, there was a young person that didn't know, but the, the, the hopeful person in me, the hopeful Gen Xer in me says it was just someone who was young that was trying that they were thinking, okay, what is the food of the culture of the South? And this is what they came up with. And, but it did get by someone, right? Like it got by a number of people and no one said, you know what, this is so racially insensitive and it is made for TikTok. It is made for social media. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So there's no surprise that it came out as how it did. What was your reaction, Warren? <clears throat> it seems, you know, it's, it, it, I think it, it's one of these things where uh, five years ago, 10 years ago, we would never have heard about this, but for, you know, all the stuff we've talked about earlier, cancel culture, the, the ubiquitousness of social media, the ability for someone to take that story and have it amplified immediately. And it goes around the world. And we're always looking for the, 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 the next thing with our hammer to just kind of like whack down. And this is, this is anything with, with a, with a racial element right now is, is just like on fire, right? Does all these issues are, are, are percolating. And so this is one of these things where, you know, I suspect Molly's right. This is an individual decision in a, in a location that is now having repercussions. And, and, you know, again, I don't know how, this seems to be one of those little blips that it's, it becomes a story for a day or two and then it kind of goes away. But uh, you can be assured that the the senior folks who run Ikea are now dealing with this and there's someone's drafting a policy about this. You know, no menu changes shall be made without consulting, you know, and they're going to have a new task force or something that's created from this. But it reminds me, like it's been a many years since I've worked in a in a corporate environment, but I remember many times, and I'm not saying I have impeccable judgment, but like I remember, and I'm sure both of you would as well, sitting around a boardroom table and, you know, you have people, you're planning an event, you're planning a something, a campaign, and at a certain point, someone brings up something that is so just out in left field or completely inappropriate that you're like, what the fuck are you people thinking? And it reminds me of that anecdote. I don't know if you, John, if you've heard about it. I think it's a Canadian one, but there was a guy working at one of the banks and they're in this meeting and they're talking about something about ice cream. And the meeting was going on and on for hours and hours and hours. And at one point, the guy just stands up and goes, it's fucking ice cream. And he just gets up and he walks and he quits his job and just leaves the room. And so it, it reminds me of just this whole corporate culture and which I don't miss, by the way. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I even have a point to kind of to, to kind of wrap that up, but it's just one of these stories that I, I think we wouldn't have heard about if Twitter didn't exist. Uh, but I think it's just one of the the indications of the whole just just the the, the race uh, story or many, many stories around it are just so sensitive and exposed right now. And I think we're going to see a lot more stories like this in the coming months. Right. And you know what also what could have happened to and we don't know is if there is a lunch menu at Ikea, which always has, you know, Swedish meatballs and yogurt, you know, whatever, there could have been a hundred things on the menu. I don't think, I don't know. Did we know, is this like a special, did they label it and promote it as a special Juneteenth uh, menu or was it a buffet and there happened to be watermelon on one end of the buffet and fried chicken on the other? I don't know if that was, if that was clear, but 
I think it was a special menu in this case uh, that had other, other things as well uh, that were Southern flavored, but uh, you know, to me, I th- not to belabor it, but I, to me, this is an, an example of where, and I'm, maybe people may roll their eyes at this, but if you're looking at issue management in an organization, sometimes things like having diversity training is a good thing because to your point, Molly, about maybe younger, younger employees who don't have necessarily historical context, um, uh, the, the kinds of, the kinds of uh, diversity education that happen in organizations now can, can play a role in help issue in managing issues and lowering the risk of things like this happening that can have reputational impacts. Um, and, you know, um, maybe Warren, just, uh, I know we're running along a time, but, uh, this, you know, this is, um, this is an example we see a lot now, especially when you in Canada issue of first nations and, and, um, um, uh, LGBT, uh, communities, like the, all that, all those kinds of, um, communities that in the past when, we, you know, we were, you know, in high school and university didn't really get any attention at all. Now in corporate settings, they're getting a lot of attention and there's a lot of more corporate uh, emphasis put behind um, uh, just, you know, making people more aware and more sensitive to, to um, their, their work colleagues. And I think in this kind of case, um, that's, that's one of those, uh, that's one of those things that can certainly help in a reputational context too. So we had one more that we had, uh, on the docket, which was about the, the pastor. Do you want to do, do you want to get into this? Uh, you know what? I think we've, I think we've <laughs> listened to the groans. For oh, but can, can I just get into it quickly? Yeah. Is if yeah. the Catholic church, I have never mm. seen an organization that can step in it more than the Catholic church, like here they have. And so I, you know, living, I, you know, living in Boston, even when all of this exploded and we have, you know, the movie spotlight oh, yeah. that's hi- mm. highlighting it. The Catholic church is constantly stepping in to these messes. And I watched that clip of that Catholic priest, you know, again, defending the church and defend, you know, it doesn't matter if it's about um, these reform homes, about President Biden going to mass. Uh, It's there's something about the Catholic church um, and and the and the rule of the power of this of man making decisions based on something that is spiritual for people. And I just as a Catholic, as a lifelong Catholic, I am absolutely amazed and dumbfounded by it doesn't matter where you are, what parish you belong to. There's some Catholic priest somewhere that will walk right into it. Well, you know, and, and I think that the ultimate the ultimate issue is that there's not a lot of taking responsibility from the top. You know, we talked about earlier about how the CEO or, you know, the person in charge needs to step up and take responsibility. And whether it's the case of uh, the abuse um, or in this case in Canada, um, residential schools where children are literally like taken from their parents and put into these schools to remove them from their uh, first nations communities. And in many cases were just abused and killed and, and then, you know, in, in the current case in Canada, um, buried in unmarked graves around the school is, is something that is so egregious that unless it is something that the organization from top down takes responsibility for, there is no getting past it. And then and no, no level of apology at the, at the local level is going to make any difference because um, it, it just isn't meaningful given this, given the scope of the, of the, uh, of what's being uncovered. That is a story. And I remember where I was when I read it the first time on my phone 
It is so horrific. And people reading it, parents reading it, it's one of those, um, the story you have, you just have so much empathy reading it because if you're a parent, you think of a child, you think of yourself as a child. It is absolutely horrific what happened to them. And there should be no one defending any piece of it, or even in the case of this pastor Keenan, um, who, who's coming out and, and saying, well, you know, why don't we look at what the good as that the school has done? If one child dies, there's no good. When multiple children die, there's never been any good. Yeah. And, and the reality is, is that Canadians don't even know the scope of what happened. And it's only going to be only at the front end of this reckoning. And it's going to get a lot worse before it, it, the pictures are going to look a lot worse for um, any kind of um, assessment can be done. Of what, what is this legacy of this uh, policy of, of taking kids away from First Nations families and putting them in these schools? So let's just give the context. So we, we sort of alluded to the issue and we've talked about residential schools and we've talked about the, the, the priest, but let's just the specific incident that we're talking about. Obviously, this is a huge story right now in Canada with the residential schools, which I have to say, I have I've had to look up on on Wikipedia and, and news websites to actually educate myself because this is this is something that was not taught in school. And and this was something that was literally going on until like 1996 or 98 in some cases. And I just found out that, um, you know, Algoma University, which we have this small university in my hometown of Sault Ste. Marie, was a former residential school. And now there's apparently uh, unmarked graves there as well. I'm suspecting they're going to find tens of thousands of people over the next couple of years. And this is going to be the equivalent of a, a Canadian and not to borrow the term like a Holocaust. Like, I don't know a better word for this, but this is a huge stain on this country. But the, 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 the church element was, you know, you have uh, the federal gov- government uh, and this is, these schools ran for over a hundred years. The federal government funded them and Christian churches ran them. Catholic churches mostly. And uh, Molly, did you ever go to a Catholic school? Did I ever go to a Catholic school? <laughs> My lifelong Warren from the nuns all the okay. way up. So yes. Did you, and, 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 you know, if, if any, this is too personal, like, you know, just, you know, just, just tap out. But like, I went to um, Catholic school when I was young, yeah, grade school and then high school, and all boys school. And, and always, you know, it was, it was, uh, there were some great things about it, but there were some creepy elements about it as well. And some of the priests that ran that place just gave you a really creepy vibe. And, you know, just, just nothing you could really put your finger on, but just like, you know, your radar goes off like that. That's something's weird about that. And so, um, not only that, like the, you know, your, your buddy's walking down the hall and the priest's, you know, massaging his shoulders or a little pat on the butt. Hey, how you doing? There's just, it was a little weird. And then we had priests who were actually just physically beating the shit out of students, like like punching them, mm-hmm. pushing them over, mm-hmm. knocking them. And that was just like, oh, I guess that's how school is. And I'm, I'm not comparing these these worlds at all. But like this, this is you know my little privileged view into that world. And it was and, and uh, the sister school we had similar stories, whacking you with rulers and stuff like it was um not 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 an enjoyable experience, and so you can imagine just the magnification over in this in this uh, this whole realm. You, the, some of the stories are, and I don't know like how much either of you have have heard about it. I'm just scratching the surface, but some of the stories are almost un unbelievable, like just unthinkable, like just evil, evil. Like I'm not even going to repeat some of them. They're just it's hard to to imagine like this is worse than Stephen King could come up with like some of the stuff that took place. And so you have this priest in the midst of all of this stuff who's giving, I think it's like a zoom sermon. I don't know if there were people there, but he's giving the sermons videotaped. You can go find it online. His name's Monsignor Owen Keenan. 
And he's saying that, and this is out of context. I don't have the whole thing. I just had this one quote because it was on Twitter. He said, I would, I would presume that the same number would thank the church for the good that was done in these schools. But of course, that question was never asked. And in fact, we're not even allowed to say that good was done in these schools. I wait to see what comes to my inbox. Well, what came to his inbox was a whole bunch of not happy folks. His church was defaced. And people were spray painting um, I guess, you know, profanity on there. And so just like, dude, read the room, read the room. Like at the very best, shut up and sit down. Like, I don't think you need to have a comment on this just, uh, and, and we're waiting to see what, what emerges from all of this. And it's, it's, it's a horrific, horrific story. People like to think of Canada as, as oh, we can do it. And this young upstart com- country and what we have done as a country to indigenous people is unforgivable. Uh, uh, Warren, you know, when you're mentioning about going to Catholic school uh, when you're young, I, I mean, I remember, you know, the same things, you know, just the smell of a certain hallway, a priest that always gave me the creeps. And then it turned out that he had sexually abused, um, you know, kids um, at our school. I, when you had mentioned that it, 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 it smacked of like the Holocaust where you're wiping away, you know, a population but uh, which I agree it is, it is your own indigenous Holocaust, but it, it just strikes me, of course, the, the, the Catholic archdiocese, you know, Boston sex scandal, which we thought was just in Boston. And now we find out not it's only everywhere. was it across the U S it was across Canada. Yeah. It was across, you know, Ireland, it was everywhere, but it's that same mentality. Like that priest doesn't look at media relations like you would, like an average person. That priest is indoctrinated into priests being at the top and what we says, what we say go. Like I went to, you know, you and I are the same age, went to Catholic school at the same time. You hoped, oh, I hope I don't get Sister Gracia because she beats her students. I hope I get the lay teacher. You know, we think that's normal. That people who did not go to Catholic school, they did not worry about getting beat with, with a ruler. But you and I, and I don't know, John, if you grew up that way, but we've been indoctrinated into it. Right. And that's, what's changing is like, it takes all of these scandals to just change the foundation of a system. Pope Francis is trying to do it. Um, but now he's dealing with sex scandals. It was first, it was the sex scandals. And now it's this, what's happening in Canada, which is just, it's, it's horrific. Mm-hmm. Absolutely horrific. John, well said John school stories you want to share. Well, I was, I went to Catholic school too. So I did you really? experience. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah grade school, high school. Wow. It, it was, uh, so, and you know, even university and that was one of the things in university at the, the uh, Catholic college I was at at university of Toronto. I remember at the time, even outrage at, um, there was a, a priest who was from another parish who was uh, accused of sexual, uh, abuse and was moved to Toronto to be parked at, the place I would, uh, mm-hmm. there was a seminary attached to it as well. I wasn't obviously part of that, but they, they had priests there and they just sort of parked him there in downtown Toronto. Uh, uh, even though he'd been accused of, um, accused of this and, and, you know, there's a lot of outrage over, you know, that's the, that's the penalty is you get to have a, you know, vacation in downtown Toronto when you're, when you're accused of this stuff. And that's, mm-hmm. I think to your point, um, Molly, in, in the case of Boston, you know, rather than deal with de- like take actually action and deal with people who are just undertaking egregious behavior. Um, they just move them around 
And in this case, they're just kind of like moving around responsibility for uh, pushing it off to the future, you know, and not actually dealing with it. And so hopefully I'm hopeful that, you know, at, at, uh, maybe this is, maybe this is a moment when they will actually decide that they need to actually, you know, try and try and um, actually account for it and, and take responsibility, but we'll see. I don't think they will. Cause John, uh, our pastor Keenan, he could have been talking about the schools. He could have been talking about sexual abuse. It's just, yeah. no, you're, concept. you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. There was, or they ship them off to Sault Ste. Marie. There was, um, there's actually a documentary called pray P R E Y. It's a great title, but the principal of our school, the one of the creepy dudes I was talking about earlier, his name is father Hod Marshall. And um, you can go on the, the trailer for this movie is him sitting down sort of, you know, video camera style being in, uh, questioned or interrogated about being a uh, serial sexual abuser of young kids. And he's like, yeah, he confesses to everything. And that's in the trailer for the thing. And this is the guy yeah. who's running our at school. your school. Yeah, that was school. the principal of your school. Yeah. Wow. And he had done it at a bunch of like he had. I think he'd been in Windsor. And then uh, these stories come out and then they just ship them off somewhere else. So they send them up to our school and uh, pull the same uh, same trick there. Like I remember not to tell stories out of school. I guess that's technically this is the probably the exact where that came from. Um, since I am out of school, I'm telling the story. But like there was there was one time when he was, uh, you know, a good friend told me they were all playing basketball in the gym on a weekend. Like they used to open up the gym and guys would go up there and you'd play basketball. One's team shirts, one team skins. You're playing basketball for the afternoon. And the priests would always come by and they chit chat. How you guys doing? And the shoulder rub. And one of the priests took his hand and just jammed him down some dude's shorts one day, like just, just in the middle of the game. And everyone's just like, what? And like every, you know, and no one said anything. It was just like a very momentary thing. And that, that stuff happened all the time. Um, but that is, uh, you know, in just, I don't know how you have those two things. Like, how can you see yourself as superior and you have all this, all this reality to me? Like, it seems like the, and not to make this like a religious thing, but it seems like the church, unless they get their act together, they're becoming an increasingly irrelevant organization just because they're so out of touch with, with what's going on and with their history. You talk about um, forgiveness. You talk about like, you know, not necessarily saying the same people who are running these organizations today are the ones who are committing these acts. But at some point people want justice and people want apologies and people want uh, the situation to be corrected. If you go back to the indigenous people, like the, you know, I used to work in the water industry here in Ontario. It's a pretty boring industry to work in, but uh, there are there are indigenous communities that have had boil water advisories for multiple decades. Many, many of them who have never had water to drink, and and how do you how do you justify that in twenty twenty one? I don't know. I'm sorry. Do you know what the Catholic Church needs, Warren? Um, I don't. Women. Women. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> no, pro- but I mean, right. seriously, right. there, it's yeah. it has been run and dictated and every decision has been made just by one sect of men. They have mm. they just need another gender. They need to allow women more to have a greater voice within the within the institution. Uh, and I until thought, they do, they won't change. I thought you were going to say that um, they need to let priests marry because isn't that the only religion left that doesn't let them marry? They don't. But strange enough, the priest in my parish is married, was married. Well, and you know, he just left, he was former Episcopalian. So you can, there's ways around it, but, um, but no, there, Hey, there are phenomenal priests, like my family priests growing. I mean, there's, there's truly wonderful priests at priests and nuns, you know, in my families, but there, there was, uh, 
What's that word? The bad ones kind of stick out. and you know. the, the bad ones stick out. But I, I do feel that like it's if you have any institution that's just truly run by one gender, one mindset, one excuse, the same one, it can't sustain. Mm. And we don't want it to fall on itself because the because faith does help so many people. And we don't want to intermit commingle faith with poor decisions based on mortal men, fallible men. This is a bit of a dark uh, thing to end. On. I know. How do how do you do it when you're in the reputation town? When the cowboy comes in, how do, where do you go off into the sunset? How do we go off into the sunset on a positive should, note? We should have left the tuna thing to the end. I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, someone needs to come up with a story or an anecdote. We need we need to brighten this up before we wrap things up here. Well, now I'm getting the the bad the bad Catholic juju that one of us is going to walk out and get hit by a bus. You know, because we're talking about the Catholic Church. <laughs> Well, we're talking about things they've done, right? And, you know, I think, again, if you can hold two thoughts in your in your mind at the same time, uh, I think I think that's fine. But uh, I, I to, to think that they're beyond question or beyond reproach when you when you're doing stuff like that, I think is is pretty, uh, pretty out of touch. Paranak, give us something. What are you doing this weekend? No hockey predictions, please. No hockey predictions, but uh, you know what? I'm, it, Ontario's opening up again. Uh, looking forward to next week and things. Um, you know, more people will be able to get together by Wednesday. We're, we're, we're sort of turning the corner. I know, uh, Molly, you guys are a little ahead of us when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just looking looking forward to the beginning of uh, July. Is like that's going to be the turning point here for 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 life to get back to normal a bit. I'm in the future for you guys. I'm a couple months ahead of you. Um, it is uh, it is night and day. It is weird. You just walk somewhere and you're not wearing a mask anymore. But it 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 shifts your your mindset and how you think, and and it just gets you excited to be outside and healthy and be with new people. It's the light. You know, the darkness is leaving us, and the light's coming back in, and it feels wonderful. Mm, absolutely. Is everybody all vaxxed up? I don't want to turn this into a vaccine thing, but like, does it, John? Have you had your other one yet? No, I still need to get my second one. It's not scheduled till uh, mid mid July. Oh man, Molly, where do you stand on this? I I had the one and done in April, and then of course a week later, Johnson and Johnson, you know, they fall into the press cesspool, which they haven't been able to get out of because there, there's another case, you know, of a brand, and now John, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, even though it, you know, even though it, it worked, and I'm so happy that I had the one and done. Mm. Um, that's just a case where they lost their momentum; they never got it back after those few cases, a great crisis management study. Indeed. Not to bring it back to darkness. We always go back to the dark. Yay. I'm vaccinated. (laughs) It was less dark than the the last topic anyway. Right. All right. right. Uh, Everybody, uh, Molly, tell people where they can find you, where they can follow you online. Hey, here's the here's your positive way that we could walk into the sunset in Reputation Town is to leave a positive review about the podcast on a Apple. The best way that you can listen to Reputation Town and keep listening to it is if you give it the reviews that it needs. And for the next four people that give an amazing review to Reputation Town or a negative review, the book doesn't matter what the review says. Just a review, I want any an review. honest review. Like if it sucks, tell us. But if it's great, like I don't want to just say leave a great one. That's, that gives people pressure. Okay, what if it's what if it's Pastor Owen Keenan? If he's leaving a review, what would he have to say? Well, he gets a book. Yeah, Damn you, weeks to hell. Um, yeah, any review, uh, and then you will get a copy of the book, Indestructible. He could have used it. He could have used it last week. Yeah, he could have used it exactly. We should send it to him. Um, but thank you for sharing um, the book and for letting me share time with both of you. It's a fun town. 
I hope you come on back now, you hear? <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.